0: I it really is a privilege being here today. I don't mind, by the way, that you're eating while I'm speaking. In fact, I point out it's got some distinct advantages. You can't talk back while you have your mouth full. <clears throat> but as you do finish your lunch, don't hesitate to turn your chair around, stretch your legs out, make yourself comfortable. It's always a privilege to be in Colorado Springs. It's such a beautiful area. I arrived at about midnight last night. I wish I could stay a little longer, but I'll be leaving shortly after the meeting today. I do quite a bit of travel, as you might imagine, because of my vocation as an airline pilot, and also because I'll take advantage of the opportunity whenever it presents itself to travel and speak to men at meetings such as this luncheon today. As I travel this great country of ours, I enjoy the scenic beauty. I enjoy eating the different foods, but most of all, I enjoy meeting the men and women. You know, I find that whether I'm in Colorado Springs, Colorado, or whether I'm in Pensacola, Florida, whether I'm in Portland, Oregon, or Portland, Maine, men and women are pretty much the same. One way in which men are the same, invariably, when men find out I'm an airline pilot, sooner or later our conversation will turn around to aviation, not I find that men love to talk about flying man has had a love affair with flying. I don't know exactly when or why it began. Perhaps initially it was simply his innate curiosity that gave him a desire to see what was over the next hill. But in any case, his love affair has lasted for thousands of years. And what young boy at one time or another hasn't gazed into the sky and he would spy a gull or a hawk as he would dive and soar, and that young boy would dream of being able to break the bonds of gravity and experience that same exhilaration of flight. But because his maker had not endowed him with the necessary equipment for flying, man's initial attempts at flying were desperate to failure. But as technology increased and man experimented, man finally determined if he had two things to he able to fly. Number one, he needed a wing, and number two, he needed a source of power. The big breakthrough came on the sand dunes of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina on December 17, 1903, when two brothers, bicycle manufacturers by trade, made the first successful manned flight. I can recall what doesn't seem like too many years ago, standing up on the flight deck of the supercarrier USS Kitty Hawk, and if I were to stand up on that flight deck and beam the island, I could look down on the flight deck and find a little brass plaque commemorating the starting point of that first flight. Then if I were to walk forward on the flight deck exactly 120 feet, I could look down and find another little brass plaque commemorating the terminal point of that first flight. That first flight lasted a total of 12 seconds, and I wonder what Wilbur and Orville Wright would think today. Let's say if they could take off from Colorado Springs, fly to Chicago here, or maybe to Dallas-Fort Worth, and spin 20 to 30 minutes in the holding pattern just waiting for their turn to land. But from those first meager steps we've reached a point today where air travel is so commonplace that it would really surprise me if I were to be in a room of men such as yourselves if I could find a single person who hadn't made a flight of one kind or another. And yet, of the thousands of people I see, day in and day out, board those air carriers, it would really be interesting to me as an airline pilot to know exactly how many of those people truly understand the principles of flight. Now, I highly suspect that to many of these people, the principles of flight remain a mystery. In fact, that might be the very reason why man has maintained this fascination with aviation, and that is that the principles of flight remain a mystery. Now, just in case there happen to be a few of you here today to whom the principles of flight remain a mystery, I've got what I call my quick course in aerodynamics, complete with visual aid. And the first time I was going to use this, I was in my study at home, and my wife Ann walked in, I said, Ann, honey, do you know what this is? And with her aviation expertise, she said, of course, Fritz, anybody can see that's a carrot." No, folks, it's not a carrot, but what it is, is a cutaway view of a wing, or a cross-section view of a wing, what's known as an airfoil. And as that airfoil moves through the air, the particle of air hits the leading edge. It then separates, half goes over the upper half of the wing, half goes under the underside, and the two halves rejoin at the trailing edge of the wing. Now there's an interesting thing about the construction of that wing if you will notice the half of the particle that goes over the upper half of the wing has a greater distance to travel so if it's going to rejoin the half that goes under the underside of the wing it's got to move at a greater velocity now there's a principle in physics named after a gentleman benoli that states that as the velocity of a fluid increases the pressure decreases so as that wing airfoil moves through the air the pressure on the upper half of the wing becomes less than that on the underside, and the wing of airfoil is literally sucked into the air. Now, as long as our aspiring aviator has his wing on right side up, and that is with the long side of the broad side toward heaven and the short side toward earth, he's in pretty good shape. But let's say what happens if, for instance, he gets his wing on upside down, and that is with the short side toward heaven and the long side toward earth. And I don't care how big an engine you hang on that wing or how fast you go. The faster you go, all it's going to do is push you down closer to earth. And all that's going to result is dust and smoke. Gentlemen, that's pretty descriptive of the way I spent the first 32 years of my life. I generated a lot of speed. But all it resulted was dust and smoke. When I was still in grade school, I determined I was going to be a naval officer. And if I was going to be a naval officer, the place to go was the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. In June of 1957, when I received that telegram informing me that I had an appointment to the Naval Academy, I told myself, "Fritz Klump, you got it made. June of 1961, I tossed my cap into the air. It was a tradition of the graduating class. Put on those shiny new engine shoulder boards, and I took orders in hand to Navy flight training down at Pensacola, Florida. I had it made. November of 1962, when my beautiful young wife Ann pinned on those shiny gold Navy wings, and I took orders again, this time to a Navy fighter squadron out at Miramar, California, just outside of San Diego. I had it made. Early January of 1966, as I stood up on the flight deck of the USS Kitty Hawk. And the commander of the carrier division pinned on that first air medal for combat missions over North Vietnam. I knew I had it made. January 31st, the very same month, I took my hard hat and hands, strode up to the flight deck, across the flight deck, swung myself into the cockpit of an F4 Phantom jet, and then as I started those engines up and I taxied forward into the full cat- pullback fittings and I push those throttles forward and I can feel that 34,000 pounds of thrust winding up underneath me and for just a moment I savored the complexity of the whole operation as I prepared to salute the catapult officer the first in a sequence of events that would hurdle me from zero to 170 miles an hour and send me streaking off the front end of that ship in a cloud of steam. I had it made. I had it made as I spotted the bridge in the jungles of North Vietnam, and then as I armed my bomb switches and prepared to dive in and blow that bridge to pieces, I felt my aircraft shudder. I didn't think too much about it until so I looked down and I saw one of my hydraulic flight control uh, gauges drop to zero, and the reality of that shutter began to sink in. So you see, I had taken a hit from North Vietnamese anti-aircraft fire. Calmly and mechanically, I turned the nose of the aircraft around, headed eastward toward the sanctity of the Tonkin Gulf. See, to us Navy pilots opened water with safety, and I had about 70 miles of North Vietnamese territory to cross before I reached open water. I jettisoned my bombs, started dumping my excess fuel, and then as I accelerated my airplane and started to climb, Warning lights started coming on on a warning panel in the cockpit of my aircraft and it wasn't long before I realized I had a fire of some kind in the right wing of the airplane. For perhaps the very first time in my whole life, I wasn't sure I had it made. Now I want you to know something. I considered the prospect of death many times before I went into combat and I can tell you here today that quite honestly I was not afraid of dying. However, at this point in time, I had some very close friends who had been shot down and captured, and they were being held in prison camps in North Vietnam, and I had determined that there was no way that Fritz Klomp wanted to spend a major portion of his life in a stinking North Vietnamese prison camp. So having done everything I knew to do to bring the situation under control, I did the only thing I knew left to do. I began to pray. Well, you see, I did believe there was a God. Gentlemen, I have to this very day to see an airplane that didn't have a designer or to see a building that didn't have an architect and a builder. And I have only to look at something as intricate as a human eye and to watch that sun rise every morning and see it set every evening to realize that here too, there had to be a master designer, a master planner. So I did believe there was a God. However, the only time I prayed is when I was in real trouble. I wanted something real badly. Well, it didn't take much for me at this particular point in time to realize I was in real trouble. So I prayed as best I knew how. That airplane made it to the coastline for a short period of time. I thought I was going to be able to land back aboard the carrier, but then the controls froze, and uncontrollably, the airplane turned back toward the coast of North Vietnam. I ejected from the airplane, parachuted down, landed in the Tonkin Gulf, was picked up by a helicopter from the very same ship, the USS Kitty Hawk, and was back aboard the ship that night celebrating the fact that I was still alive and among friends, it did not occur to me for one instant the possibility that God had answered that prayer. It wasn't until approximately a year later when I was doing test work on the same aircraft, the F-4 Phantom, back at McDonnell Douglas Aircraft Company in St. Louis, Missouri, when the reality of what had happened on that day in the skies over North Vietnam began to sink in. As I got into those aircraft systems as never before, and as I recall the location of those hits in the right wing of that airplane, I became convinced that there was no way that that airplane had continued to fly on its own. I became further convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had spared my life. Now you might wonder, what sort of emotion did you experience? Thankfulness? Of course I was thankful. Who wouldn't be thankful for something like that? But you know, even more than that, I was puzzled. For as I said, I had some very close friends who had been shot down and captured, and they were been held in prison camps in North Vietnam, and others had been killed, and they were better men than I was. They were better fathers, they were better husbands, they were better naval officers, and I couldn't understand why God had spared me. Now, if you had asked me at that particular point in my life, if you had said, Fritz, are you a Christian? I would have said yes. If you had asked me what that meant, I'm not sure what kind of answer I would have given. I think in retrospect, more than anything else, I was expressing a religious preference. It certainly wasn't a way of life. For what I had is what I would have to call my own personal religion. And it was a code of ethics or philosophy of life based on the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule. And perhaps could best be explained if we were to consider a giant ledger. And I reasoned. There's a column over here, and every time I do something good, I'm going to get a check mark in this column. And over here, there's another column. And every time I do something bad, I'm going to get an X mark in this column. And one day, I'm going to come before God. I'm going to come before my Maker. And as long as it checks, outnumber the X's, he's going to say, Well, Fritz, you tried real hard. You did your best. You can come on into heaven, whatever that might be. Now, gentlemen, if I had read the Bible, I would have known that the Bible says... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that's you, that's me. That's every single person in this room has sinned in word, thought, or deed and fallen short of God's perfect standard. The Bible further says the wages of sin is death or separation from God. And just as perhaps some of you are involved in sales and you're paid a commission when you make a sale, or maybe you perform some sort of professional service and you're paid a fee for performing that service, And I, as an airline pilot, have paid for the number of hours and the equipment I fly. The wages of sin is death. Now, if I had read the Bible, I would have known that. But you know, I'd never read the Bible. Oh, I had tried on numerous occasions. I reasoned any book that's been a bestseller as long as the Bible's been, any man or woman who considers himself reasonably intelligent would have to read that book at one time or another. So I'd pick it up and I'd start right where you start any book, right at the beginning. It was a surefire cure for insomnia. I hadn't read the Bible and I didn't have any answers, but I knew God had spared my life. And for that reason, I determined to be that much better a person for God. Any of you men ever make New Year's resolutions? That's basically what I did. I resolved to be a better father, a better husband, a better naval officer, not necessarily in that order. You know, my resolutions went the same as yours. It wasn't long before I'd broken every one of them. Because I was not in agreement with our nation's policies in Vietnam, I made the decision to leave the Navy, and when I left the Navy, I left with two primary objectives. Number one was to see how much money I could make. Number two was to eventually get involved in politics and see if I couldn't help make this whole world a better place in which to live. But at this point in time, we had two small children, and it didn't take much for me to look around and reason if we kept going the way we were going It wouldn't be long before it wouldn't be a suitable place for my children or my grandchildren. So with those two primary objectives, I got a job as a pilot with Delta Airlines. I got a real estate license. I started pushing real estate on my days off. I looked for every opportunity to make a buck. I got involved in grassroots politics, and on Sundays I went to church. I went to church for several reasons. First of all, as I said, I had determined that God had spared my life in Vietnam And I was gonna pay God back. And one way that I felt that I could pay God back was by going to church. And secondly, as I said, we had two small children. And our first two children were little girls. And I remember when that first little girl was born. You know, the thought of raising a little girl scared me to death. You see, I know how little boys think. And I wanted my little girls to have the moral guidance of the church until they were old enough to weigh the consequences of any wrong decision they might make. And then thirdly, going to church simply suited the image that I determined I should have. Not only did I attend church, I was pretty active. I taught Sunday school in spite of the fact that I never read the Bible. I served on the administrative board and I even served on something they call their commission for evangelism, but it would come that Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday night, whatever the case might be. And they'd call me up and they'd say, Fritz, tonight we're going to go visit men. And I always had an excuse. So I'd tell myself, hold on, there's no way that you, Fritz Klopp, can go invite another man to go to church with you. Because you see, if he had a good golf game going on Sunday morning and enjoyed going fishing, he had more than what I had. For you see, gentlemen, I was spiritually bankrupt. And the sad thing is, I thought there was no one that called himself a Christian that had anything more than what I had. As I involved myself in grassroots politics, I found myself saying if we could just get the right man elected, we'd get the whole mess turned around and get moving in the right direction. But we never seemed to get the right man elected. And then I paused one day and I looked at the men whom I was working to help put in office and I looked at the problems that we faced as a humanity and I said, you know, even if we got those men elected, there is no way that those men in their own strength could resolve those problems. Just as surely as I had to face up to that fact, I finally had to face up to the fact that there was no way that I, Fritz Klomp, could be the kind of person that I determined to be in my own strength. I couldn't be the father I wanted to be. I couldn't be the husband I wanted to be. I could not be the kind of person I determined to be. Several years in the airline, I began to enjoy the material fruits of my labor as never before. In one year, we built a new home, bought two new automobiles, and we opened a Swiss bank account. Now before you get the wrong impression about that Swiss bank account, that was simply a modest investment speculating against the impending devaluation of the dollar. As I think back, it wasn't a bad investment. But you know it represented so much more to me than a modest investment. It was really representative of where I was putting my stock in life. But as I sat in that new home and drove those new automobiles, I found myself saying, wait till the next promotion of the airline. Wait till I check out as captain. Or wait till the next real estate deal comes through and the next investment pays off. Then I'm going to buy a boat, and then I'll buy an airplane of my own, and then I'll buy some investment properties. And I looked around me one day and I said, hold on. I saw men and women who had all of these things and they still weren't happy. And many of them would say, wait until retirement and retirement would come and they'd waste away the remaining years of their lives and I said you know whatever it is it's missing in your life you'll never fill it with material things because the things you want are stand one step ahead of the things you can afford there was a short period of time when I thought peace could be found in a cocktail glass like so many men and women in our society today but I'd wake up the next morning I'd look at myself in the mirrors I'd shave and things hadn't changed Perhaps I felt a lot worse than I had the night before. And I tell myself, there's just got to be more life than this. Bill was a man who had everything. I had a job doing something I loved to do, flying airplanes. I had a beautiful wife. I had two daughters. And by this point in time, I had a fine son. I had a new home. I had two new automobiles. And I even had a Swiss bank account. But I had some real serious questions as to what life was really all about, and I wasn't sure I had any answers. You know, when we built that new home, we found ourselves looking for a new place to spend our Sundays. And we ended up in a little Sunday school class where a fellow, an old semi-pro baseball player, used to stand up on Sunday morning, and he would teach out of a book. It wasn't the same size nor the same color as this one, but it had the same title, Holy Bible. And he used to stand up on Sunday morning, and he would just teach verse by verse, page by page. And I would sit in there and listen. Now, I want you to know something. I didn't listen to this man because I was intent on the content of what he was teaching because, quite honestly, I wasn't. But this fellow talked so fast, I found it a challenge just to hear the words he was saying. And as I sat in there over about a six-month period of time, and I couldn't be there every Sunday. You see, Delta's ready when you are, and some of you are ready to go on Sunday mornings. So I couldn't be there every Sunday, but I'd be there maybe one Sunday, one month, maybe two Sundays, another month. But as I sat in there, I became convinced of several things. You know, first of all, he actually believed that book. And secondly, I looked around me and I saw a few other people in the room that evidently believed that book, and it was obvious to me that they had a quality of life that was different from my own. I became less and less sure that I had any answers at all. Maybe there's more to this business of Christianity than anything I'd ever considered. And I can recall one Sunday morning, I was sitting there, as I had on so many previous occasions. My wife Ann was sitting at my side, and I was suffering a dull headache and a dry throat. But I was paying the penalty of the Saturday night activities of the night before. And some folks were standing up talking about some sort of demonstration they had been to in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas. And they seemed to radiate an enthusiasm for life like nothing I'd ever known. That particular morning, my wife Ann turned to me and she said, Fritz, I don't know what it is they have, but that's what I want. You know, I didn't know what it was they had either. But when you love someone as much as I love my wife and they pose that kind of challenge, you'll do your best to find out. And I thought I did know somebody who knew what it was they had, that old, like, semi-pro baseball player. I swallowed a lot of pride that morning. Let me tell you why. See, he had tried to come by and visit me on previous occasions. And I can recall one time in particular, one night, we were living down in southern Louisiana at the time, and we used to have a favorite pastime down there, and I was eating seafood and drinking beer. And this particular night, I'd gotten a fresh sack of oysters, and I was opening the oysters and drinking the beer, and the telephone rang. And Ann said, hey, it's a Sunday school teacher. He wants to know if he can come by and visit. I said, tell him I'm not here last person in the world I went to see was a Sunday school teacher. And let me tell you why. You see, gentlemen, I thought he was peddling religion. And let me tell you something. If there's anything Fritz Klump didn't need and doesn't need today, it's religion. Now, if I had realized for one instant that what he had was answers to life's greatest questions... Perhaps I would have listened for to this very day to meet a man or a woman who doesn't need answers to those very same questions. But I swallowed a lot of pride that morning. I walked up and I asked him if he would come by. He said he would. One night the next week, he came by our home. He sat down in the family room of our home and he told me some things I'd never considered. He told me, first of all, the very reason man was created was to have fellowship with God. But because of his own stubborn self-will, man chose to go his own independent way and fellowship with God was broken. And he said this self-will, which was characterized by active rebellion or simply passive indifference, was an evidence of what the Bible calls sin. Now that was news to me. I thought sin was drunkenness, adultery, murder, robbery. This meant sin could include these things, of course, but was also simply a matter of acting apart from God or as if God didn't exist. And as he explained, the wages of sin is death or separation from God. God is holy and man is sinful and because of that a great gulf or chasm separate the two. Man is constantly trying to reach God through living a good life, code of ethics, philosophy. Well, you know, even religion has been defined as simply man's best effort to reach God. But that poses a dilemma, you see, because man can't reach God. But then as he further explained to me, God showed his love toward man and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This meant I didn't have to clean up my act to come to God where I couldn't reach God. God reached down to me through the person of Jesus Christ. And as he explained, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not a myth, not a fable, a fact of history. Gentlemen, if you could disprove the fact of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christian faith would be worth nothing. But it's been said there's as much historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as there is for the fact that Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo. Now when I talk about this person of Jesus Christ, I want you to know I'm not talking about a mythological character I'm not talking about a picture on a wall or a piece of statuary I am talking about the historical Jesus of Nazareth born in space and time a very unique birth almost 2,000 years ago Walked this earth worked a vocation just such as you and me His happened to be that of a carpenter died a horrible death was bodily buried and bodily rose again from the dead made some absolutely phenomenal claims for himself, for he said, He who hath seen me hath seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. That's the Jesus Christ I'm talking about. This fellow explained to me that becoming a Christian was simply a matter of accepting the forgiveness that Jesus Christ had provided for my sin by his death at the cross, and a matter of allowing him to come into my life let him take control of my life and make me what he wanted me to be. And he said I could acknowledge that by a simple little matter of prayer. You know, I thought of several things that night. I said, first of all, if there's a God in heaven, and I believe there is, I certainly don't know him personally. And you know, I had tried to know him ever since I realized that he had spared my life in Vietnam. But you know, I'd always tried to know him on my own terms. I determined if there's anything to this business of Christianity I want to know once and for all or I never want to darken the doors of another church I prayed that prayer I didn't hear any organ music I didn't hear any claps of thunder or see any flashes of lightning but when I finished praying that prayer I prayed another little prayer and I thanked him for coming into my life it wasn't long before several things did begin to happen first of all I became interested in this book and as I picked it up, the more I read, the more I learned about this person, Jesus Christ. The more I learned about him, the more I learned about myself, why I couldn't be the kind of person that I had determined to be. And the more I learned about myself, the more I learned about other men and women. Now, I'm not going to stand up here today and tell you that ever since I prayed that prayer and made that commitment that my life's been a bed of roses. In fact, I'm going to tell you quite the opposite. I'm gonna tell you I've known the hardest times in my life since that point in time. For to me, they were a lot harder than flying combat over North Vietnam. For perhaps like many of you, I'm locked into making a very viable working relationship with another distinctly different individual. And in case you don't recognize what I'm talking about, I'm talking about a marriage relationship. And let's face it, that can be tough sometimes. And Perhaps also like you, Ann and I are, are into parenting I used to say if the youngest will survive the teenage years, we've got it made. Well, I'm here today to tell you that he has survived the teenage years, but I'm also here to tell you that just because they survived the teenage years doesn't mean parenting is over. And we've had the many heartbreaks that go with parenting. And I, like you, have had to work through the many crises that life has to offer. So life hasn't been a better osie. But let me tell you something. If it hadn't been for that commitment I made just about 24 years ago, there's a certain stability I've had in my life that there's no other way I could have had that stability. Let me tell you something else. One of these days, just like that, life on this earth's going to end and eternity's going to begin. Just two weeks ago, I stood at the bedside of my dad as he passed from this side to the other side of eternity. That six-foot hole in the ground is a great equalizer. I don't care how big you are, how tough you are, how rich or how powerful. Death is the most democratic process known to man. Gentlemen, we're all going to do it, and we're going to do it just one time. But you know when that moment comes for me, I know exactly where I'm going to spend my eternity. One thing we learned in carrier aviation was how to get the most out of a drop of fuel, for you never knew when it'd be a dark night and maybe the deck would be pitching and someone would come along ahead of you and wipe out the landing gear, a praying one in, as we called it. Unlike civil aviation, you couldn't always climb up and fly to another airport because out in the middle of the Pacific, there were no other airports. So all you could do is climb up and pull the throttles back and milk it for all it was worth and hope they could get the wreckage cleared out in time for you to come in and land. Now, every aviator likes to have an ace in the hole, and we used to have an ace in the hole in the form of an airborne tanker, and that was simply another aircraft off the same ship that carried an extra store of fuel, oftentimes in a belly tank under the center line of the airplane. And when you needed that fuel, you'd simply join up and do a little airborne refueling. It wasn't enough to get you anywhere, but it sure bought time. Needless to say, this is one operation we wanted to have down cold because when you needed it, you needed it. There were no two ways about it. So we used to practice this airborne refueling. And I can recall one dark night off the coast of California, we were going to practice the airborne refueling, and we had climbed up and found the tank on radar. It was one of these nights where there was no moon out and there was a high overcast cloud layer, so you couldn't see the stars above and low overcast, absolutely no horizon. The kind of night when, I used to say, the junior officers did the flying and the senior officers stayed back in the ready room. And we'd gone up and found the tank on radar about 400 miles per hour, and pull up behind him about 20 or 30 feet and he'd stream this drogue, which is nothing more than a basket on the end of a hose. And we'd pull up a little closer and when we were plugged in, we could tell we had good contact by the sequence of lights on the basket. And we'd simply tell the tanker pilot that we had good contact and all he had to do was reach down, hit a transfer switch, and transfer fuel from the line store to our aircraft. Well this particular night he reached down and hit the wrong switch. Instead of hitting the transfer switch, he hit the retract switch. and as the drogue retracted, and I saw that light shoot away from me, I had the horrible sensation that I was falling out of the sky. Now what I was experiencing is a form of what's known as vertigo. and it was a term that was popularized by an Alfred Hitchcock movie a number of years ago, some of you may remember. To the fellow on the ground, it's sometimes called swimmer's ear, but to the aviator, it's simply a matter of not knowing which way is up. Well, you see, we function according to three basic inputs. Number one, we have the visual cue to those things around us. Number two, we have the gravitational pull upon the joints of the body, and then thirdly, we have fluid in the semicircular canal of the inner ear. When the body's in motion, the movement of that fluid is sensed by little hairs sending the signal to the brain that the body's in motion. As long as none of these are impeded, we're in pretty good shape. But let's say what happens if we lose one. Take, for instance, the aviator who flies into a cloud bank. He's lost that visual cue to those things around him. Let's then say he puts his aircraft into a right turn. Well, he sets into motion the fluid in the semicircular canal of the inner ear, sending a signal to his brain that he's in a right turn. Let's then say he levels his wings. Well, the fluid in the inner ear is still moving, still sending a signal to his brain that he's in a right turn. So if he responds to everything his senses are telling him, he will continue to bank his aircraft back to the left. One of two things can happen. He can bank his aircraft up till he stalls, spin, crash, burn, or enter an ever-tightening, descending spiral called a graveyard spiral. The end result speaks for itself. So if our aviator responds to everything his senses are telling him, everything that feels right, then the end results are the same. They're fatal. Gentlemen, I contend that that's exactly what men and women are doing in this hedonistic society of ours today. I contend that men and women are suffering spiritual vertigo the bible says is a way that seems right to man but the ends thereof are the way of death in fact it's so important it says it twice in exactly the same words. there is one hope and only one hope for aviator that is to totally ignore what his senses are telling him get into the cockpit onto his flight instruments his primary instrument of which is his attitude gyro i further contend that the only hope for men today is to get onto the primary flight instruments of life and I further contend that the primary flight instrument of life is the Word of God the Lord Jesus said is recorded in the Word of God I am the way the truth and the life no man cometh unto the Father but by me now gentlemen I don't know where you are today I've met a few of you just for the very first time a couple of you perhaps I've met before and have known you for some time Maybe you can relate to a few of these very personal things that I've shared with you here today in this brief time that we've had together. Maybe you're out in the business world building up a big bank account or powering the business structure. Please don't misunderstand anything I'm saying here today. There's absolutely nothing in the world wrong with material success. But you know, the Lord Jesus said, what is it profit of man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Maybe you're out in the community and you're working to make it a better place in which to live for your children and your grandchildren. Once again, please don't misunderstand anything I'm saying here today. I am thankful for people who are community conscious. But you know something? The only way we're going to have a changed world is to have changed men and women. And the only one that can change a man is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Maybe excitement's your thing. You know, there was a time when I thought nothing could be more exciting than taking a catapult shot off an aircraft carrier, flying twice the speed of sound, playing Top Gun, then come back aboard that carrier and make an arrested landing. But you know something? That's before I discovered the reality of allowing the very power of the universe to control my life moment by moment. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart." Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your past. And the Lord Jesus said, I came that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. That gentleman's relative. I don't care how exciting you think it is now. Maybe today you recognize the possibility that you're suffering spiritual vertigo. You know, every time I speak, I close in prayer, and I'm going to close in prayer here today, so I'll ask you if you'll bow with me as I close in prayer. Almighty God, as I stand before you, stand before these men and women here today in Colorado Springs, I want to thank you once again for sparing my life on that day in the skies over North Vietnam. Heavenly Father, I know that if I had lost my life physically that day, I'd be separated from you for all eternity. So I now realize that I was suffering spiritually God. Not only do I thank you for sparing my life, but I thank you for allowing me to come to the knowledge of just who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for me personally. Now, Father, I know there are some here today that perhaps have heard for the very first time that they can know that their sins, past, present, and future, all forgiven on the basis of the forgiveness that was provided by that sin by Jesus Christ and his death at the cross. I know there are some here today that perhaps for the very first time recognize that they're suffering spiritual vertigo. For these, right now, I would pray, O Holy Spirit of God, that you would convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, gentlemen, as you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to offer you in just a moment an opportunity to pray a prayer very similar to the one that I prayed 24 years ago. But before I do, I want you to know something. I'm not here to invite you to have an emotional experience. You know, that's the very last thing I would desire for you here today. What I am inviting you to do is to make a commitment. Not a commitment to me or not a commitment to CDMC. Not a commitment to any less than the same Jesus of Nazareth that died on the cross for your sin made the claim for himself that he who have seen me have seen the Father, Brian, the Father of one. If you're here today and you've me- never made that commitment, if you're uncertain as to where you stand in your relationship with Almighty God, I invite you to pray with me silently right where you are. Now, it's not the words that are important. It's the attitude of your heart. But if that's the attitude of your heart, pray silently. Lord Jesus, I need you. I admit that I have sinned, and I thank you for dying for that sin. I now accept the forgiveness that you provided for that sin, and I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to take control of my life, and I ask you to make me what you want me to be. Now, I thank you. For coming into my life. Amen. and Amen. Just one quick thing I've got for you I'm going to ask you to do as we close here today. If you'll look on the tables, you'll find an envelope on the table. Now, if you're here today and one of these for the first time and you say, uh-oh, now they're going to take a collection, relax. That's not what this is all about. But if you'll open